You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We are now in the home stretch of uh, this incredible letter of Paul. In fact, uh, beginning here in chapter 14, uh, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, Paul is, I think, dealing with the final subject or topic uh, that he has in the letter. And uh, it is, uh, the topic is how Christians should treat other Christians. And uh, so Paul, in these, uh, this section, devotes some 35 uh, verses to this topic. And uh, so apparently it was very important uh, in Paul's mind, and uh, therefore it must be very important for us uh, to study it today uh, and in the coming weeks. So we look today at Romans chapter 14. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses uh, this morning. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for the precious privilege and freedom and blessing that we have to meet like this together today and and to hold in our laps, Lord, your very word to us. And we pray, Lord, that in these moments we humble ourselves as we humble ourselves before you and put ourselves in that right place of, of you as our Father, our God, our Lord, that we would hear what you would have to say to us. And by your Spirit, Lord, transform us once more, little by little, to be more 
in the likeness of your Son. And I pray that you would use me as your servant, Lord. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord takes very seriously how we treat one another in the body of Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, he was not speaking there of children. He's talking rather about believers, as he says, these little ones who believe in me. Uh, Before you would ever offend or cause another believer to stumble, you would be better off, Jesus says, to be drowned. How we treat one another as Christians is a very serious thing in the eyes of our Lord. Which is likely why Paul devotes so many verses here in this section to this subject in Romans chapter 14. He's already set the stage for us in chapter 12 when he commanded us to love one another. And in many ways, that theme continues right on here in chapters 14 and 15. In fact, down in verse 15 of chapter 14, Paul makes reference to walking in love. Clearly, this is his desire for us as his people, as his congregation, that we would be those who are walking in love. Now, Paul has some very specific things, I think, in mind and a specific situation that he is dealing with in Rome. It's what precipitated his words. And uh, the introduction is going to be a little bit long this morning, uh, so don't fret. Those of you who are anxious to fill in blanks, uh, we'll get there in just a minute. We don't know all the details here, but we do know some, and it's important for us to think about what these are here uh, in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We want to start right off with talking about this word, opinions. The word means disputable matters, matters that are in dispute, non-essential kinds of things. Opinions, if you will, uh, on which it is not necessary for all Christians to agree upon. That's critical for us to understand what Paul is saying here. The quarrel that Paul is referring to, the potential for quarrels, is not over essential doctrines. It's not over uh, the gospel. It's not over things that he's already taught in chapters 1 through 11. Uh, This is not the kind of issue that we find, say, in Galatians, where Paul says, if anyone teaches anything but this gospel, let them be accursed. No, no, these are not about those things. This is about non-essential matters. This is about opinions. This isn't quarreling over doctrine. This isn't quarreling over the gospel or over what sin is. You may remember Paul takes very different approaches when he's talking about those things in his tone and in his instruction. 
Um, for example, uh, those in, caught in public sin, he says, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as he calls those people to repent of their sins, and if not, they should be cut off from the fellowship, the body of, of Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's addressing non-essential things, quarreling over opinions. And the examples that he gives, you just look at the text, uh, verses 2 through 4, he's talking about what one's diet is. Uh, verses 5 through 9, he's talking about how people observe various days uh, on, on the, the, the calendar. I think I'll talk in just a moment about the, the Jewish religious calendar, the days, the special days. And yet, he has very much concern that these non-essential issues can cause great disunity and harm in the body of Christ. It's also important to note that Paul is speaking to believers here. And including the weak that you see there, um, what is it in verse 1, the weak in faith. These are folks who are absolutely committed to Christ. There's nothing to suggest here that Paul thinks that the weak that he's, he's referring to aren't Christians. Uh, I think everything says the opposite. The assumption is, is that they agree with the gospel that Paul has been laying out. Uh, in chapters 1 through 11, these folks are folks who believe and understand that they are sinners, that they believe Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. They have experienced a transformation, the salvation that comes when one repents and believes on Jesus Christ and can be saved. What Paul is talking about here is, is not that, but he's saying is that even a person who has done all of that, who is a sincere believer in Jesus Christ, that there still is the possibility of differences of opinions over these non-essential matters. He does describe these believers in two ways. He calls them first, in verse 1, weak in faith. Now look ahead to chapter 15, verse 1, across the page, and you'll see he, he mentions those who are strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So when he's talking here about a weak believer, weak in the faith, Paul does not mean weak in will. He's not talking about weak in character. He's not uh, talking about loss. We've already covered that. He's describing a believer who uh, perhaps because of their past... Because, think of Judaism past, uh, because of their upbringing, how they were raised, traditions they were raised in, uh, their preferences, non-essential things, preferences. These folks, weak believers, who cannot fully enjoy their freedom in Christ. These folks perhaps struggle a little bit with being legalistic, and, and they struggle a little bit with having scruples, uh, you know, things that they're indecisive about. Notice verse 5, Paul speaks of being fully convinced in his own mind. The, the weak in faith that he's describing is someone who I think probably is fully convinced in his own mind, but it's not about their freedom in Christ. It, they're fully convinced about non-essentials. They're fully convinced about diets and days and such. As he's, so they have very strong consciences, but it's over non-essential things. 
And they tend to think that the tendency is, again, generality, the tendency is is that everyone else should be as convinced and convicted as they are about those non-essential things. By default, the strong, again, he doesn't mention until chapter 15, verse 1, but certainly involved here, the strong, I think, is referring to someone who understands their freedom in Christ. That they are not constrained any longer by certain diets, think Old Testament again, uh, observances of special religious days, uh, again, Old Testament, or any traditions or rituals, but because they recognize that they are in Christ, they, they, they recognize they are free concerning those things. And so we might say, this is a play on words, I don't mean to make it more confusing, but, but if the weak has a strong conscience about non-essential things, the strong have an informed conscience. And by that, we mean informed by the Scriptures concerning their freedom in Christ. So Paul makes it clear that Christians need to follow their consciences. They need to be fully convinced in their own minds, and they, by all means, should not go against their consciences because we don't want to be like those whom Paul will mention in 1 Timothy 4.2, whose consciences are seared. You know, we don't want to be hardened in these things. And yet, at the same time, we also don't want to be uninformed by the Scriptures, right? Amen? You all with me? We want to be informed by the Scriptures. And so Paul makes it clear Christians need to follow their consciences, but our consciences must never be allowed to be independent of the Bible because a strong conscience is uh, informed by Scripture. Uh, A strong conscience that is uninformed by Scripture, rather, would make you a weak believer. The weak in faith he's talking about here. The problem that Paul is addressing here in the church is that the strong believer might look down on the weak believer and that the weak believer might condemn the strong believer uh, in enjoying their liberty in Christ and that a quarrel might develop between them. And I think there's evidence here in the text that perhaps this quarrel has already started in the Roman church. And Paul is wanting to address it. He's wanting to head this off. He wants them to be a people that uh, will, by their unity and love for one another, put on display the, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've already seen in the letter tensions between Jews and Gentiles. And I've alluded to this a time or two before, but around A.D. 49 in history, the Jews were kicked out of Rome for rioting. And probably over Christ, over some their Christian faith. But then several years later, the Jews were allowed to return. So imagine these Jews being kicked out of Rome and therefore their church. And then they've been invited back to Rome and they come back into the church. And this church has now changed. It, 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 it was kind of led by the Jews, but now it's primarily led by the Gentiles. And the Jews have come back into the church and, and the majority of the church now being Gentiles, they don't follow the diets. Maybe they have a fellowship and certain folks are bringing casserole dishes they shouldn't bring. 
it's caused tension in the church. And all of a sudden, days that were important to uh, the, the Jewish believers the, of, of their, their past were, were unimportant. I tend to think that the weaker brothers here are the Jewish Christians. And they're, they're struggling with this. They're struggling with uh, eating kosher meat. Therefore, perhaps they're only eating vegetables. Um, and these Jewish folks, again, who had lived their whole lives, their whole upbringing centered around the Jewish calendar of all of these special days that were celebrated their whole life. Now they've come to know Christ, but they're, they're struggling to let these things go. They're struggling to, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those wonderful special days. And they're having a hard time letting them go. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that even when we become Christians, there's, there's no doubt our lives are radically changed on the inside, but there's still a lot of things to be worked on on the outside, isn't there, right? And, and there's long ingrained behaviors, and there's, there, there's all kinds of things that we, preferences and all kinds of things that we bring to the table that ultimately need to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 14 is that it is the burden of the strong to patiently bear with those who are weak. Right? That's who he's addressing here in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. He's speaking to those who are informed by the scriptures in Christ who are, he calls strong in this case, he says it is our responsibility to welcome the weak in faith, to accept them into the fellowship. And there's a sense in which even to accept them in your heart, to love them, to welcome them, to receive them. And verse 3, to not despise them. Or pass judgment on them. Now, he gives four reasons for us to do so. And I think hopefully having that introduction will help these reasons to make, uh, make more sense as we walk through them together. He gives four reasons that we're to welcome the weak in faith. First, he says, because the Lord has welcomed him. That's his first point. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. That's the Gentile. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. The person who here believes he may eat anything represents the strong believer. Again, I think the Gentile. You, you may or not, may not remember this. Mark chapter 7, verse 19, uh, Christ declares all foods clean. Therefore, he, in a sense, fulfills all of the dietary, the Jewish dietary laws that we see in the Old Testament. And therefore, believers can eat what they want, including bacon. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful? And Paul himself, if you look down in verse 14, he sides with the strong on this. Convictionally, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. The Jewish believers who had been taught their whole lives these food laws, 
They were just struggling to let those go. Imagine sitting down and, and, and trying to enjoy that casserole with bacon in it. And for them, it's like, this is so unclean. This is, I've been taught this my whole life. This is making me unclean spiritually. Their consciences were convicted by this. It doesn't mean that they weren't Christians. They were just struggling with these old dietary laws. It made them feel unclean, even though I think they still believe in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation, right? So therefore, Paul says that the one who eats, that's the stronger brother, that not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, the weaker brother. He says, don't hold them and contend for this. Don't condemn them for this. Don't look down on them for this. And then he says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And the reason is, for God has welcomed him. This is such important counsel, isn't it? Here, Paul affirms both right doctrine, the truth but also healthy relationships. Paul himself takes a doctrinal position. No foods are, are unclean. But then he turns right around and he insists that we welcome others, respect others, accept others who do not have this same conscience as conviction, that we refrain from condemning them, him, him, he says, and passing judgment on them over these non-essential issues. It's important that we don't read more into this than we should. He's not talking here about a worldly acceptance that, again, we would take this completely out of context and say that God's word doesn't matter and that we should be accepting everyone and even overlooking all sins and pretending like it. That's not the kind of thing he's saying here. He's talking again about matters of opinions and non-essential issues, not biblical truth. Paul assumes that church members can live in peace without compromising their convictions, that we can get along with one another without agreeing on every point, and that the default position of every single one of our hearts is to welcome one another, to receive. And the reason is, he says, is because God has welcomed them. That weaker believer who's still wrestling with implications of the gospel in his or her life, Paul says, you need to remember something, that God has welcomed that person into his family. As God has received us by grace, we need to receive one another by grace. And, and the burden here is, again, on the strong. The strong doesn't need to merely tolerate the weaker, but to receive them, to welcome them into the fellowship. And likewise, he says, the weaker believer, I think, should not pass judgment on the stronger because of your personal preferences. You felt this way by your upbringing, your own tradition, your own thought. You shouldn't, you shouldn't pass judgment on the stronger. He too, that, that stronger believer has also been welcomed by God into his family. Here's how Paul says it at the very end of the section, chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If Christ has welcomed our brothers and sisters, then who are we not to welcome them when it comes to these non-essential issues? 
A second reason we should welcome and not despise the weaker brother is because the Lord will uphold him. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. I kind of wrestled with this. MacArthur was helpful to me in, in understanding this. Be, the tendency of the strong, certainly what Paul is saying, is to despise the weak. And we might be tempted as stronger believers to look at the weak and think to ourselves, they, they are so, those, those weak folks are going to fall away. They're just not going to ever get this. Look at, that, look at that poor legalistic person over there who just cannot let this go, narrow-minded, who really can't understand the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. They're, 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 they're not going to get this. They're going to fall away. And it's as if, and the weak at the same time might pass judgment on the strong. The weak might look at the strong and say, well, look at that radical believer who thinks they don't have to follow anything and, and they don't have a chance either. They're certainly going to mess up and fall very soon. To which Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, do you realize that both weaker believers and stronger believers belong to the same Lord and Master, Jesus Christ? And what will be the result of that? Paul says this, he will be upheld. That's wonderful, isn't it? He's not going to be upheld because of you, but because of him. Because of him. Now, I don't think he's saying here we don't need to care for one another. I don't think he's saying here that we should not, uh, that the stronger brother should not seek opportunities to instruct weaker brothers and sisters, but that's because that's what the weaker brother needs, but, but to be patiently brought along, sound teaching. But ultimately what Paul is saying here is their salvation is not going to be, be upheld by you. He's going to be upheld, but it's not going to be by us, it's going to be by the Lord. You remember Romans 5.2 that talks about how we stand before God through our justification. We stand because God makes us and enables us to stand. No one has a right to condemn those whom God has justified and welcome. Third, we welcome another, one another because the Lord is being honored by both. I think that's the point of verses 5 through 9. We might have differences of opinions on non-essentials, preferences, ways that we were brought up uh, by our parents and traditions and so forth. And even though we might practice some things differently, Paul says the goal and the motive is still the same for the, the weak and the strong here. Listen for it. Listen for it as we read verses 5 and 6. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days as alike. In other words, there's nothing special about those special days on the calendar. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, he observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks God. Paul says, step back and think about what, what you're doing here. The weaker believer is trying to honor the Lord, even as he focuses on diets and days. 
He's being very conscientious about this. He wants to honor the Lord in this. He's not. he's, he's, He's putting forth. And the stronger believer, he says, is actually doing the same. Even though he doesn't put weight on those particular things. And again, this isn't about sinful things. Being weak is not. You notice I keep repeating this because it's important. Being weak is not synonymous with being carnal or fleshly or sinful. Those, these are weak believers who don't yet understand their, their freedom in Christ. And Paul says each one needs to be, verse 5, fully convinced. Fully convinced. And, and I think that's a call. Do your homework. Read your Bible. Listen to mature believers. Learn, be patient with with one another because each one is seeking to honor the Lord in this. Now, Paul's making an assumption there, isn't he? He's not saying that every single person in the world is seeking to do this, but but he's assuming that these folks here in Rome, these Christians, are each, each seeking to live, and you notice the phrase, to the Lord. You might want to underline it. I think to the Lord or to God, he uses, he repeats like six times. In, in those brief verses, he, he is assuming here that every true believer, that this is their pattern, this is the, the, the bent, this is the direction of their life, living to please the Lord. Every decision, every action, every word, they're not doing it for themselves, they're doing it for the Lord. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. It's an incredible statement. We are the Lord's. It's really the the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Both the weak and the strong both belong to the Lord. Even a weak believer understands this. To to this end, all believers strive that Christ might be Lord and that we might honor Him in all that we do. And that includes welcoming one another. So we do so. We welcome one another because Christ welcomes us. We do so because the Lord upholds us. Third, we do so because the Lord is honored by both. Finally, note this, because the Lord alone, He says, will judge both. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In the Greek, there's, there's an emphasis in verse 10. It's, it's literally like this, but you, but you, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And, and but you, why do you despise your brother? Once again, Paul rebukes the weaker brother for condemning the strong and the stronger brother for despising the weak. And, and by repeating that, that, that word, brother, he's reminding yourself, Don't forget who it is you're talking to here. Brothers, sisters in Christ. 
those that belong to God's family. And one day, those who will stand before the judge of the universe. A couple quick points here. We shouldn't conclude from this that God is forbidding believers from making any judgment. You know, we see that phrase, why do you pass judgment? John 7, 24, Jesus says, judge with right judgment. This is not an unequivocal call to not have any judgment whatsoever. And, and there's many times that we should judge. Judgment is both right and necessary, particularly when we're talking about judging between truth and error. Or judging between right and wrong. Or judging between false teachers and, and true teachers. I mean, you have to make judgments. There's a right judgment. He's not saying throw all judgment out the window and, and just accept everybody. That's not what he's saying. The Bible doesn't say that. But what Paul is warning us here specifically is a judgment that is unwarranted because it's about non-essential things. And that judgment that leads us to condemn one another. And beloved, Paul says we will give an account before God for this. And so we're back to where we started. Make no mistake about it. Contentiousness is not a trivial matter to our God. He has told us, Romans 13, love one another. And now he's warned us here not to quarrel about opinions. He followed the same sequence in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22 and 23, where he tells Timothy, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Paul sees quarrels as coming from our sinful natures, our flesh. And we need to flee it we, so that we may live in love and peace with one another. Here's some closing applications. What do we do? First of all, we accept that Christians are prone to disagree. Amen? Not all of you said it, but you do. We're just prone to disagree because we're humans. Secondly, we need to pray to have discernment and humility in dealing with one another. It does require discernment. It is, there's thought behind this and, and humility. We're, our discernment is informed by the Scriptures, right? What does the Scripture say? Is this a non-essential matter? Is this an essential matter? Is this a matter about the gospel? Is this something that really doesn't matter at all? Is this something I, I, I need to respond in a different way? Humility to re-examine ourselves constantly, re-examine ourselves and our own positions on these things. And, and although we cannot compromise on essential doctrines, we certainly can let lesser matters go because, he says, we're not to be quarrelsome over these things. Third, we continue to strive to instruct one another and to be instructed by God's word. Paul told Timothy in that passage, 2 Timothy 2, 24, and he told him to instruct his opponents with gentleness, he said. We do want to be, have consciences that are informed by the scriptures. Fourth, we watch ourselves. We watch ourselves. The strong can easily grow weary with the weak. <laughs> and vice versa, the weak can grow weary and condemn the strong. But Paul says, since God welcomes sinners 
and let's be honest, mediocre theologians by His grace. The way that we show that we have been transformed by the gospel and follow Jesus Christ is when we welcome and accept one another. That's the power of the gospel in us. Oh, God, work in us to do these things. Amen. Work in us. This is the church that we need to be striving to be. And so if you are here today and and considering uh, perhaps your part, your place, your role uh, in all of this, your, your identity, a church membership. Um, we want to invite you. We have three things that we ask folks to do. We ask them to attend a First Baptist Church Discover class, which, by the way, is being offered right after this service, and it comes with lunch. Secondly, to meet with a staff member to share your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And then third, to come forward at the end of one of our services and express your desire publicly to join with us. And so if you have questions about this, about salvation, baptism, church membership, you can, you can fill out one of those connect cards. I think there's a box on there, a place you could write on there. Someone will reach out to you. Uh, or you can start the process this morning simply by coming forward. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'm going to stand right here. I would love to pray with you, talk with you more. Uh, get that process started about your decision. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for the clarity of it, Lord, and we pray for your help in understanding it and even more in living it. We thank you that you have welcomed us by your grace. Lord, we pray that we would take that posture as much as we can in non-essential things. And welcome one another in Christ. Do that work in our fellowship, Lord. Give us discernment and wisdom and humility. So that when people see us and hear about our church and come and visit our church and see the the relationships and the, the dynamics here, that they would truly know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because they see it. They see it in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.